Hi everyone, I'm Jill Campbell, the Head of Investor Relations for ANZ. Welcome to all of you listening to today's podcast, which accompanies ANZ's release of a trading update for the first quarter of financial year 2021. We've released a number of materials today, including a slide pack, and we'll refer to that at points during this podcast. The materials were lodged with the ASX. They're also available on the ANZ website in the Shareholder Centre. I'm speaking today with our Chief Risk Officer, Kevin Corbley, and our Acting CFO, Shane Buggle, covering some areas of interest to those of you looking to delve a little deeper into the update. I'll start with you, Kevin. Let's talk a little about credit quality and provisions. ANZ announced a $173 million release of collective provision today. Can you walk us through some of the aspects of determining that? Jill, look, thank you. Um, and look, there, there are a number of things to think about here. We came into this financial year in a, in a strong position. We're very well positioned from both a capital and a provisioning perspective at 11.7% common equity tier one ratio. And also we had $5.6 billion of total provisions. Uh, and included within that, there was about $4.8 billion in collective provision balances at the end of that first quarter. So if, if you think about it this way, we put on roughly about $1.7 billion in provision charges essentially in six months last financial year. And what we've done is we've released about 10% of that uh, uplift today. And the outcome was a mix of some portfolio um, reductions together with the release of some of the buildup in the provision balance as the economic conditions have improved since last year. You know, and if you think about it, the economic outlook has really improved relative to what were pretty dire estimates that we had last year. And also both Australia and New Zealand, I think have really handled COVID better than almost every other country in the world. If you think, for example, that it's September last year, we were forecasting a contraction in housing prices of 9% this year. Now what we're saying in this update is that we're forecasting growth nationally of about 5%. And similarly, we're expecting GDP to return to pre-COVID levels a year earlier, and we're also forecasting a much lower unemployment level than we were last year. At the same time, though, there's still a delicate period for the economy, as evidenced by recent issues in Queensland, New South Wales, Western Australia, and even more recently in both Victoria and in Auckland. You know, we're, we're also mindful that there's still quite a bit of support in the system from government in the form of JobKeeper, JobSeeker, etc. And also that, you know, banks through things like mortgage and commercial loan deferrals have also supported the system. And it's, it's sort of unclear what happens when all of that support falls away. So, so if I sort of step back and, and think about where the economy is at, especially relative to last year, how we're set up with less customers on deferral than many of us thought, was going to be the case last year. You know, um, we've got roughly about 1% of our home loan customers in Australia and New Zealand that are still under ferals. But also, counter that with the level of volatility and uncertainty that still exists, we feel that our current provision levels are prudent and are appropriate and we're comfortable with what is a relatively small release. Okay, thanks. So when you think about that total provision charge, that's obviously a combination of whatever the outcome was for the IP or individual provision and the CP, collective provision outcome. The IP in the first quarter finished at $23 million, and that's substantially lower, obviously, than the, than the average for, if I think back over the last couple of years. So how should we think about that? Is it timing? Is it something else? Have we struck a new normal? Look, if we step back, it's worth remembering that the individual provision charge is actually an aggregate of new impaired charges, 
increased impairs and any right backs and recoveries that we might have. So essentially in the first quarter, what we saw is right backs and recoveries were broadly in line with the average of second half of last year and new individual provisions and, and right backs and recoveries largely sort of offset each other. Um, in addition, the increased impairs were actually lower across the portfolio. So in terms of your question is, you know, is this the new normal I think we're some way off normal conditions, <laughs> but we haven't really had a normal quarter for, for some time, right? So I don't think we're yet to see the impact of the removal of the support that I mentioned earlier from government and, and the banks. We do expect that that will start to flow through in the second half of this financial year uh, and also into 2022, and we will therefore see a, an increase in IP. But I think it's important to remember that during the course of last year, we built up a large collective provision balance, and that was built up with an expectation that we would ultimately then release that as credit quality deteriorated, or alternatively, you know, some of our customers became delinquent. And the other point I'd make too as well is that the the lower individual provision charge for this year also reflects the fact that our larger customers are in a much better financial position. And it's important to bear in mind, that's a bigger impact for us because our institutional business is a bigger element of, of our book than maybe some, some others. But it's also a reflection on the fact that there's been unquestionably a lot of work on reducing our risk profile and improving the credit quality of our book, not just within institutional, actually, over the last number of years. Okay, thank you. If we, you mentioned deferrals as part of one of your answers there. When you, you think about the deferral cohorts today, how, how are you, what are the kinds of things you're thinking about? Look, what we've seen and, and what people would have seen in the trading update is, is that we've had an 84% reduction in our Australian mortgage deferral cohort from, from the peak to, to the end of January. We've also had an 88% reduction in our Australian commercial customers that were on deferral, and a 92% reduction in, in New Zealand mortgage deferrals. Or another way to think about it actually might be that approximately 1% of our home loan customers in Australia and New Zealand remain on deferral, and there's a meaningful portion of that, those that are remaining on deferral, that are due to roll off in, in February. So that, that sort of backs up part of the initial view that in large part, and we've been saying this throughout, these were customers who just needed time to get you know, given the impacts of COVID, customers who are performing well prior to lockdowns, et cetera, and would highly likely return to performing once they once they emerge from from these lockdowns. And it's it's important to remember, I think this is really important, that we've been in re- regular dialogue with these customers throughout the deferral period and will again contact them, you know, several weeks out from the end of their deferral period to discuss how they're tracking. And the indications are... Uh, that those that need more help, you know, will be relatively small and therefore it'll be manageable. Now, we'll obviously have to work really closely with those customers and look at what options are available to them. Uh, And that includes even the ability, if we wanted, to restructure those loans without capital penalty uh, right up until the end of March. Okay, so when you think about, it sounds like most of these are, are going to be gone before the end of March, but there will be some customers who, who remain. When you think about that tail, uh, again, how do you deal with that? How do you think about that? If, if you look, if you look at those that are remaining on deferral post the end of January, you know, there's probably not really many surprises in terms of their composition. So where they are geographically, what businesses they're in, 
you know, 60% of our commercial loans that are on deferral are from Victoria. And if you combine our exposure in cafes and restaurants and retail trade, that's about 44% of those that are left. So as we approach the end of March, the tail is, as you described it, then is likely to be small. We think it'll be manageable, particularly relative to the level of provisioning that we've already uh, taken to date. And maybe the key point is that delinquency trends for the sector, you know, more generally have been, have been favourable. And, and they've been favorably impacted by the deferral cohort because basically anyone who is on deferral is treated as current. Having said that, we've, as I said earlier, we've been in regular dialogue with all of our deferral customers throughout the deferral period. We're going to do so again a few weeks before their end date. And our experience has been that in almost all instances, those saying that they will resume payment have actually done just that. Right. So th- thanks for that. We're going to move on now to talk to you, Shane, about uh, margins. I think that'll be a bit of a hot topic today. So the group margin up five basis points. Can you walk us through the components of that? Thanks, Jill. We've included within the trading update support pack a slide, this is slide four, which provides a useful step through of, of the movement in the margin. And you can see that the group net interest margin or NIM increased three BIPs three basis points of what we call the underlying basis. And that excludes the market's balance sheet activities. Pleasingly, the margin grew in each of our divisions, which would be the first time in in quite a while. Um, The impacts from low rates and the impacts of low rates on our replicating portfolio and liquidity books did come through as as we said it would. And competition continues to remain intense. The relative improvement arose from improved wholesale deposit price, wholesale funding and deposit pricing, some improvement in the mix, which was came from the stronger growth in our mortgages book relative to our institutional uh, lending book, and some benefits, benefits from asset pricing, and that's where we repriced the institutional uh, front book in the second half of 2020, and we see that flowing through. Right. Right. So when I look at that waterfall chart that you've talked about, there's four basis points of funding cost and deposit pricing and another two basis points of asset pricing. Is that now in the NIM or is there more upside from here? I think essentially it's embedded in the NIM now. Um, We may see some further upside in deposit pricing as TD rates and savings might come down. But there are also asset uh, competition headwinds and we expect those to continue. If you think about the home loan markets, um, there are incredibly sharp fixed rate offers in the market now, and we expect to see customer switching and back book repricing to persist. The front book, back book margin differences and higher margin maturities will also be a headwind. So when you think about all of that, and this is the, <laughs> the, the impossible question, but how are you thinking about where margins will be at the end of the half? Well, Jill, as you know, we don't provide forecasts. Nice try. <laughs> But you could think about it this way. Okay. On volumes, the mixed benefits of the faster-growing retail and commercial book vis-a-vis our institutional book will con- is likely to continue, given the momentum we have in those, particularly in the mortgages book. On pricing, the benefits, as I mentioned, from funding and deposit pricing are largely embedded. So offsetting that, we continue to have the lower rate environment and that impacts our replicating portfolio and impacts our liquidity book and competition continues to remain persistent. So thinking about all of that, we would expect that on an underlying basis, 
margins to be slightly up compared to the second half of 2020. How much depends on customer behavior? So that's slightly up on the 159 basis points. Measuring by reference to the underlying 159, yes. Right. Okay. Last question, uh, which is one for you, Shane, still. On expenses, another flat cost outcome. How should we think about expense management in the quarter? Well, I think it's been a consistent story from ANZ on expense management for the last five years. Our position hasn't changed and we aim to continue to reduce costs in absolute sense. That comes from seeking productivity improvements on our business as usual costs and also to invest in the future, in the future of the business and partially through the savings from the productivity benefits and partially through the, our, our investment spending. We have, and I just want to remind you, we've said many, many times that the, that the journey is unlikely to be linear and that we will not going to underinvest just to hit a number. So we might see some bumps along the way, but it continues to be a very tight focus on business as usual productivity. Right. And it's been quite a few quarters in a row now. So I think, you know, we can definitely say there's a theme. So that was all the questions I had for, for both of you. I think we've covered most of the, the main topics. There'll be a transcript of this podcast available uh, online if you want to check back on, on any of the things that we've talked about. And, of course, the investor relations team is available to have a conversation with you as well. So with that, thank you to everyone who's listened. Thanks to Shane. Thanks to Kevin.